Welcome back. Here we are again for another episode of the Humble Perspectives podcast. This time I'm reading chapter 20 from my book, For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey. Great blessings came our way following our move to Lexington, Kentucky. But there were difficulties too. You remember the following promise that Jesus gave? Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Blessings with persecutions. Persecution that comes from the dark powers comes in many forms. But if we follow Jesus, we can count on facing some trouble. Jesus told us so again at the end of his final discourse with his closest disciples on the night of his arrest. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. John 16:33 Still perhaps you're like me somehow trouble all nearly always seems to take me by surprise and now chapter 20 testing continues I am not the person to write a history of Covenant Church in Lexington however some background is necessary to my own story Therefore, based on what I've heard from others and what I remember from my own experience, here's a little about this community of which we were now members. Covenant Church was a relatively new name for the community there in Lexington. Until not long before our visit in 1983, they were Covenant Community. Although this community was not ecumenical in the same sense that the servants of the Lord was, It certainly did not have the history of a typical evangelical church, even of a non-denominational church. People came to it from all sorts of Christian backgrounds, and some had no Christian background at all. In the early years especially, a number continued to worship on Sunday mornings in whatever churches they had been participating in previously. In 1968, Paul Petrie, with his wife Rebecca and several others, had begun a ministry called Christ Center in an old school building near downtown Lexington. And a number of people actually lived there communally. The Petries and at least some of the others had been students at Asbury College, which is now Asbury University, in the small nearby town of Wilmore. Part of the inspiration for Christ Center was David Wilkerson's Teen Challenge, the ministry that had grown out of David's call to minister to the members of the New York City gangs. That story is told in a very important book back in my early years especially, David Wilkerson's book written with John and Elizabeth Sherrill, The Cross and the Switchblade. Christ Center was located on South Mill Street in the building that would some years later be known as Historic Dudley Square. The members of Christ Center actively shared the gospel with people from the streets, many from the counterculture, and many involved in drug use. A good number of young people, both churched and also unchurched, were attracted to the ministry and it became one of the early local expressions of the Jesus movement. Before that movement 
had even been named or recognized. In the early 1970s, Paul and Rebecca spent a couple years on mission in Europe and then lived for some time in Fort Lauderdale, Florida for more training as disciples themselves after they'd become related pastorally to the New Wine teachers. In 1974, Paul moved his family back to Lexington, where joining together with some people from the Christ Center days and others involved in a non-denominational Bible study, they founded Covenant Community. Because words such as church and pastor have, over the centuries, taken on meanings and connotations well beyond the meanings in the scriptures, this congregation, like many others in the discipleship movement, chose to use words such as shepherd which is the actual translation of the Latin word pastor, and community, which is a fitting word for the life shared together by those who became followers of Jesus, the type of life described in Acts 2.42-48, for example. By 1980, Covenant Community of Lexington was one of the bright lights among the discipleship communities, and several groups began to move to Lexington in order to consolidate their efforts similar to what had happened in the Servants back in 1977 and 1978. The Meadows and another couple had moved from Lancaster, Ohio, but a number of people from small churches in the communities north of Lancaster also moved with their pastors about that same time. In the early 1980s, groups from communities in Miami and Jacksonville and other locations in Florida also began moving to Lexington to be part of the community. While our group was in the process of moving from Minneapolis, a community from Norman, Oklahoma began to move to Lexington as well. By 1985, there were 10 elders in the church, most of whom had moved with the flock, all working full-time. Several were receiving part of their support from the ties of leaders whom they were discipling in other cities. During the early months that we were in the church, we were setting up about 550 folding chairs in the main room of our building, as I recall, on the first and third Sunday morning when we had meetings each month, the time when all the flocks came together. It was common for the seats to be full, with as many as 25 to 50 or more seated on the floor near the stage from which the worship team led us in singing and from which speakers for any given Sunday ministered. Worship in song was robust. Church started at 10 a.m. Prayer ministry was available following the, for people following that service. It was not unusual for us to get home at 2 p.m. or even later after praying with people. Excitement was in the air, at least of those, for those of us who were new. Each of the elders met with their own local flocks in a variety of locations on the second and fourth weekends of each month. Our flock usually met in the basement of our home unless we had a picnic in a park. We did not have meetings on the fifth Sundays, but we encouraged families and small groups to make the day special together. The flock structure helped those of us who had moved from Minnesota by pro providing secure relationships during the transition. But that structure also meant meetings were not the best means for integrating relationally into the larger community. New Covenant Academy, Covenant Church's K-12 school, provided families another opportunity to be involved with each other. 
Some of our flock members became part of the worship team. Several members of the church went out of their way to be hospitable and to include people from Minnesota in their activities. Overall, these first months were a positive time. Some from our group, however, were facing difficult financial times. One brother, for example, had been basically a stay-at-home dad caring for the children and adding a little to the family income by music lessons while his wife worked at her accounting job. The couple had become convinced that he should be the family breadwinner, so he was doing everything he could to start a piano tuning business from scratch in Lexington. For at least a little while, he came to Lexington alone and borrowed a phone in someone's office or home. There were no cell phones in those days. And just started going through the Lexington phone directory, seeking business. Then, for two or three months that first summer and fall, he and his family lived in a tent at the Lexington Horse Park campgrounds before they were finally able to get into a house. Talk about sacrifice to follow God's call. Another brother who had a wife and four sons had worked as a loan officer in a St. Paul bank. Through some contact back in Minnesota, he was offered the opportunity to start a mortgage company in Lexington. So the family bought a home and moved and he set up a full office for his company and began seeking business all based on the promises of financial support he'd been given. Support that never came through. He struggled in that business for about two years before he had to declare bankruptcy both in the company and personally, and then he had to make a new start financially. There were some who did well also. I remember one brother driving down with me to job hunt on the trip when I came down, had come down alone to find a house for our family. In Minneapolis, he had done maintenance work in a large office building. Before coming to Lexington, he had done some research, and as we drove out of downtown Lexington on South Main Street, he pointed out a sign identifying the site as a construction project of the well-known, but not to me, web companies owned by the developers Donald and Dudley Webb. That's who I'm going to work for, the brother declared, and he did. He got an interview with the company a few days later and soon moved his wife and their infant twin sons to Lexington where he began to manage maintenance in several of the Webb Company's buildings. Not only did he get a job with web companies, but later he was able to help another brother from Minneapolis whose first job didn't pan out well to get a good position with web companies also. For most of the families especially, however, it was a difficult move from the financial standpoint. I was very glad that I had not asked people to move, but I encouraged them to move only if they were truly sure it was God's call. I tried to encourage and support everyone as well as I could. My work those first months in the church, besides caring for the flock, was focused on teaching English and U.S. history at New Covenant Academy. In addition, I took part in the weekly elders meeting, getting acquainted with my fellow elders, learning how they went about their work of praying and planning and leading in the church, and contributing when I could. Gradually, I became aware that not all was as well in the church as it had seemed to be. Just before the first of our people had moved to Lexington in early June, Covenant had begun the process that I have described earlier as reaping the fruit of mixed seed sown. John Meadows had phoned me in May 
to say that he was sending a cassette tape of an important family meeting of people in the church. We had regularly been receiving tape recordings of Sunday services already in order to help us make the transition. This tape was different, he said. It was important because some issues had arisen in the church and they had recorded the meeting of members during which the problems had been discussed. John did not want me and the others moving from Minneapolis to be surprised that all was not well. I listened to the tape, of course, but I didn't have enough background information to truly understand some of the concerns people raised, and I certainly didn't understand the depth of hurt and offense that it turned out that at least a few of them carried. Later I find out that it wasn't just Covenant Church of Lexington in which the problems were surfacing. But similar things were coming to light in a number of the discipleship churches. The shepherding movement had been controversial at first, largely among several non-denominational leaders who saw the growing number of people entering covenantal relationships and looking back to the five, nine, five new wine teachers for leadership. They saw that, other leaders that is, as a threat and competition. Even by 1977 at the Kansas City Conference, the controversy had become such an issue that it led to two different non-denominational groups meeting in two different venues at a conference called to celebrate and foster unity among God's people. Using terms such as shepherd and community had also become controversial, especially for people who had only a contemporary cultural rather than a truly biblical understanding of what it means to be a church community. The word covenant, while a prominent theme in scripture, had fallen into disuse among many evangelicals, as well as in the larger culture. And the use of word covenant to describe personal relationships between brothers in Christ was simply not understood by many. Even the word disciple was not commonly used in many churches, except when talking about the twelve whom Jesus called to be apostles. Among evangelicals, the navigators were among the few to use the term. And even they used it to talk more about helping someone get grounded in biblical knowledge through scripture memorization than they did to refer to mentoring relationships established to lead people into mature spiritual formation in Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. To complicate matters more, such words and the efforts made to live out these biblical truths had been disparaged and treated pejoratively by Christian leaders who opposed the shepherding movement. Therefore, in the early 1980s, Covenant Community had bought a church building rather than continue to meet in rented facilities, and they had gone back to using the common American terminology church and pastor in an effort to avoid misunderstanding and to counteract the accusations that they were cult-like. Some leaders outside the movement had expressed deep concern, often using inflammatory language, that for people to have a personal shepherd or pastor or to be a disciple of anyone other than Jesus was unbiblical, heretical, and an error that opened the door to spiritual abuse. Truthfully, there were mistakes made. Looking back, as I see it, the vast majority of leaders and people in the discipleship movement were young and inexperienced, either as leaders or in following Jesus, or both. Hence the desire to be discipled 
that so many of us had. Inevitably, youth and inexperience and zeal did indeed sometimes lead to errors in the application of spiritual authority. As in any group of people, there were most likely some who were self-serving in the way they treated disciples. In Covenant Church and in the discipleship movement, at least some of the problems that surfaced appeared to have been related to immature and unwise leadership. I had not been in the discipleship movement during the early days, and so I cannot speak about such things from my own experience. My experience of personal pastoral care has been positive. Those to whom I had looked as representing pastoral authority in Grand Forks and in Minneapolis did not mistreat me, but rather served me well. Some were indeed young and inexperienced and had much zeal, but I profited from the leadership I received. For example, the call to be a servant and to show honor and respect to leaders had been a life-changing reality in my life, something essential to my growth in Christ. But in the discipleship culture, too much emphasis was put on serving the one to whom a person looked for leadership. Serving, as it was understood by many, had in far too many cases been seen and experienced as an action that went in one direction, from the person under a shepherd up to the shepherd. There's nothing biblically wrong with a person serving the one who's discipling him. In fact, it's part of the training process. More than that, serving is at the core of what it means to be a human being, what it means to reflect the image and likeness of God. When the Son of God became a man, he became a servant because humans were created to serve God. In the upper room on the evening before Jesus was crucified, Jesus plainly talked about servanthood being a part of discipleship when he said to the twelve he had chosen and trained, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. John 15, 13-17 However, Jesus also made it plain that it was not his goal to be served, saying, The Son of Man came to not to be served, rather, he went on to say, the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life. Matthew 20, 28. Jesus is the ultimate example of servanthood in the way he served the Father and in the way he serves those he leads by training and leading us, by protecting and overseeing us. His obedience in accepting death on the cross, Philippians 2, 5-8, in order to save us who were under the tyranny of death and the devil, Hebrews 2, 14, 15, and Colossians 1, 13. His obedience in accepting death on the cross is the ultimate example of serving motivated by love. See Galatians 5.13 To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a servant. To be a human is to be a servant. Jesus, the new man, the last Adam, as 1 Corinthians 15 calls him, is a servant. Since Jesus is also the whole fullness of deity dwelling in a body, Colossians 
And since he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3, we know that God also serves as the one who is love. Again, serving is not wrong. Serving is the high privilege as well as the responsibility of true love, of agape love, as the Bible would put it in Greek. But if serving becomes the fulfillment of an obligation separated from the expression of other-centered love, agape, whether that serving's on the part of the one being served or the one doing the service, then serving has become something other than expression of God's glory, and it's in vain. I want to give you again the definition of the word agape, the biblical word for the kind of love that God has and the kind of love God gives to us and the kind of love that God calls us to. Self-sacrificial, other-centered love. It's a definition I've derived from the scriptures after reading and studying and meditating for many years. Back to the book. In my opinion, the leaders whom I came to know in Lexington had not sought personal advancement or intentionally used people wrongly. But they apparently had not made it clear enough that leading in God's kingdom is simply one form of service, not some sort of exalted status and position of privilege. And I think it would have been wiser if they'd made it clearer by example that no task was beneath the dignity of a leader, that all of us are called to, to be servants who serve in whatever way is necessary at any given time. In the Lexington Church, there was a further complicating matter. A number of the brothers who had started in the community early on had become cell group leaders, and some had trained others who had also become leaders of cells. Some of these brothers had come to believe that once they were discipling and caring for 10 or more, they would become full-time leaders, supported by the ties of those with whom they worked. It was disappointing and hurtful to some of them that Instead of becoming elders themselves, several leaders had moved to Lexington from other places and become elders in the church. In effect, though, I doubt consciously, some may have been serving for personal recognition and advancement, which is not the way of the kingdom of God. Another problem, it seemed to me, was that some people, because of their immaturity, had relinquished too much personal responsibility for their own decisions to the shepherd-slash-pastor who was caring for them. By God's grace, I had developed enough maturity in Christ that when I began to look at to another brother for pastoral oversight, I sought to listen to what he said as unto the Lord. However, I did, if I did not have peace with the counsel I was given, I would talk it through with that brother until we were in as much agreement as possible. I realized that I was responsible before God for my own actions and that I would need to give account to God myself. Also, I came to understand that it was not wisdom, indeed it was not right, for me to use the counsel of my pastor as a way of putting my wife and family under obligation. It was manipulative for me to try to get the right response from my wife by saying, well, my pastor says we need to do whatever. And it was not right for me to say to my children, you cannot do that because our church says whatever. 
God had made me the husband and the father, the leader and caregiver of my family, not someone else. I needed to lead out of my own conviction and to allow my family to work through things with me, just as I had needed to work through things with my leader. Ultimately, we all belong to Jesus, and we are each one of us responsible to Him. He is the one head of the church, His body, Ephesians 1.22-23, Colossians 1.18. And Christ, Scripture teaches, is the head of every man, 1 Corinthians 11.3, in which the content context concerns the family order. Those of us moving from Minneapolis to Covenant Church did not have the same history, so we did not readily see the underlying turmoil at work among people who had been in the church for several years. We saw a building full of people worshiping God enthusiastically when we came to a Sunday meeting. We didn't understand that some people were leaving the church offended and hurt even while others were moving in. We did not see the losses clearly, but we were well aware that new people were being welcomed in. On the surface, everything seemed well to us. Then, a fresh work of the Holy Spirit began among us. Although I had not known the dynamics of it, I was aware that Rob Reynolds, one of my fellow elders, was going through a difficult time. However, not long after we moved to Lexington, Rob attended a meeting where the late John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard Movement, was ministering in teaching and in prayer. And Rob was deeply refreshed, to say the least. At his urging, Paul Petrie made a trip to Little Rock, Arkansas in the fall of 1984, near the holiday season, in order to meet John Wimber and to attend one of his meetings. Without going into detail, I will simply say that Paul had a powerful, fresh encounter with Jesus at that meeting. After Paul's return to Lexington, I remember well when we elders met with him in a secluded sitting room of his home, where we had sometimes had our elders meeting. He and Rob shared the testimonies of their encounters with the Lord at the meetings with Wimber, and they began to describe the phenomena which had taken place in these meetings. Although I believed in the spiritual gifts and believed that the Holy Spirit sometimes moves in unusual ways, their description of people doing things like shaking violently, breaking out in loud laughter or weeping, and falling down in response to the Holy Spirit, Spirit. well, I received their words cautiously, I must say. Although I spoke in tongues and I had seen healings and I experienced other gifts of the Spirit, in my own experience and perception, these activities, while led by the Spirit, were done with the willful cooperation of the person being used by the Spirit, and were not particularly connected with emotional feelings. Even when I shouted loud praises or clapped, and sometimes even tried to dance to the Lord in worship, these were acts of obedience to the instructions of Scripture, typically not particularly connected to my emotions. What Rob and Paul described, at first anyway, sounded extremely emotional to me. In some ways, that was an odd response. After all, I had grown up in a church culture in which people shouted and ran the aisles and did other unusual things. Once, I'd even seen a man jump on the back of a pew and then run from pew to back to pew back in order to get to the aisle so they could run in the aisle as an expression of his joy and praise. I tended to trust these, those phenomena because I grew up seeing them and I knew many people who did these things. Well, my own grandpa, Grandpa Humble, had been one of them. 
These responses, I had come to think, were emotional ways of expressing joy in the Lord because, based on my observation, people tended to do these things most often in response to songs about heaven or preaching about the hope to come. Nevertheless, my first response to Rob and Paul was caution, perhaps even skepticism. Yet I could not ignore Paul's personal testimony. When he talked about having stood for two hours laughing with his eyes closed and his hands and arms raised, all the while feeling he was being battered with light from above, I simply could not discount that. Paul is as sophisticated and self-controlled in the best sense as anyone I know. I had seen no sign that he was given to unrestrained emotional responses or odd behavior. And his testimony of the lasting refreshing and release from the weight of inner burdens that had come to him surely sounded wonderful and desirable. Then, in a very calm manner, Paul suggested we pray. Simply and quietly, he said, Holy Spirit, come, as he had seen and heard Wimber do. The Spirit came. More accurately, I should say, the Holy Spirit was present already, as he always is, but I began to be consciously aware of his presence. In that manifest presence, things began to happen among us, things that were simply not typical of our own normal responses. More importantly, I was fully aware that the Holy Spirit was moving quietly among us, even though our responses to his presence working were not necessarily quiet ones. When Paul shared his testimony with the church the following Sunday, the Holy Spirit's presence was manifest in the same way, and the same phenomena and more began to take place. Not only that Sunday, been in a variety of gatherings and situations for weeks to come. Several people were dramatically healed of physical ailments, too. This was a revival in the sense that many of us have become aware of loving Jesus more, of anticipating the Spirit's work in us and through us. Many were refreshed in hope and faith. Oddly, though, this revival did not stop people from leaving the church. In fact, I remember some longtime members being moved with powerful phenomena and great joy on one particular Sunday, and then we would not see them at our meetings again. I remember John Meadows saying it was like the Lord was giving us divine anesthesia in the midst of a time of loss and pain. Here was refreshing joy in the Spirit. One Sunday afternoon in January, there was a gathering of teens in our basement. One of the longtime members of the church shared a simple message, and the adults present began to pray with the youth. The Holy Spirit began to move among them strongly. The following day, during chapel, at school, revival broke out. Repentance and confession and physical healing occurred as the students began to share with one another. Such a powerful working of the Spirit began in the youth that we ended up having no classes for the whole week in order to allow the worship and prayer and ministry to continue. As the word began to spread, adults came to be prayed for by the teens. There were some amazing instantaneous physical healings, and a number were powerfully touched by the Spirit's hand. On Thursday, we took a number of our students to Louisville so that they could share and pray and worship with students in the school there. More of the presence and working of the Spirit took place. Then on Friday evening, we traveled with a group of the students to share with a youth group in a sister church in northern Kentucky. Again, the Spirit moved powerfully among us.
Whether it was because we didn't stay in the posture of dependence and expectation, or because seasons for so-called anesthesia don't last forever, I don't know. But gradually, the most obvious signs of the Spirit slowly began to wane. In fact, within a few weeks, according to my son, then a student in New Kevin Academy, quite a few of the students had reverted back to the way they had been before, and some may have become worse than before. Among many of us adults, the obvious moving of the Spirit continued for at least several months. Even though most of the phenomena subsided over time and the strong sense of the Spirit's work and presence among us diminished gradually, I experienced some substantive changes, a new confidence and delight in the Holy Spirit, for example, that have endured to this day. In 1985, our church was led by the Spirit into missionary activity in a big way. It was exciting, and the people from our flock were involved in helping people pack their belongings for moves into various different places around the states and the world. Under Paul Petrie's leadership, a missionary sending agency, International Outreach Ministries, was established in August 1986. And we had our first commissioning service that month in which we commissioned 48 people to move to other countries for mission. Some left that year also to start or to serve a church in other places here in the States. This was exciting, and yet it had its sad side, sad side also, because people we cared about were moving away. And people continued to leave the church from time to time for several years. Seemingly, it would happen in clusters of several families at a time. Although this was difficult, it did open a substantive way for our Minnesota flock to contribute to the good of the whole church. We had solid relationships with each other, a steady commitment to the church and its ministry, and a willingness to serve wherever and however we were needed. Therefore, we were able to be a stabilizing presence in the midst of change and loss. I am convinced that our move to Lexington, from God's perspective, had more to do with Him sending us to serve than it did with Him sending us to be served. It seems like, in a completely unanticipated way, we were a gift from the servants of the Lord that God sent to help strengthen Covenant Church when strength was needed. Besides what was happening in our local church, most of us elders were stunned by an announcement the new wine teachers made at a meeting for elders held in Chicago in April of 1986. We Lexington Covenant Church Elders had traveled together to Chicago for this meeting of leaders in the discipleship movement. Charles Simpson, Bob Mumper, Don Bashan, and Ern Baxter had called the meeting after Derek Prince had decided to disconnect from them from his relationship with the other teachers in March of 1984. In Chicago, we were told that the other four teachers had decided they would no longer try to work together. They said that they intended to continue in friendship with one another, but would serve those in each of their relational networks separately. However, the general statement made to the whole group of us did not disclose fully the tensions between some of the teachers. Those like Paul who were pastorally connected to Charles learned more of the facts. Therefore, it seemed to me that Paul came away with the understanding that the discipleship movement or shepherding movement was over. On the way back to Lexington after those meetings, 
Paul told us some of what he knew, but was careful not to give details that could constitute gossip about the teachers. There never was an attempt to gather the movement back together again. Brother Don Basham, who had edited New Wine magazine for a number of years, moved to Michigan once the publication ceased, and he died in 1989. Some of his books, including the classic Deliver Us From Evil, A Pastor's Reluctant Encounters with the Powers of Darkness, are still in print. Brother Earn died in 1993, but recordings of a number of his messages are available online. For that, see brokenbreadteaching.org. Brother Earn's extensive library is preserved. After stewarding the library for 15 years, Charles Simpson's ministries donated it to the King's University in South Lake, Texas in 2015. Brother Derek continued in ministry until his death in 2003, but his ministry also continues in books and audio and on the Derek Prince Ministries website. A few years later, in November 1989, later than their breakup, Bob Mumford released a public statement of repentance in which he wrote, quote, Accountability, personal training under the guidance of another, and effective pastoral care are needed biblical concepts. True spiritual maturity will require that they be preserved. However, to my personal pain and chagrin, these particular emphases very easily lent themselves to an unhealthy submission, resulting in perverse and unbiblical obedience to human leaders." Unquote. That comes from David Moore's book, The Shepherding Movement, Controversy and Charismatic Ecclesiology, which I recommended at the end of the last episode. In one published interview, as I remember it, Brother Bob affirmed his belief that the teaching of discipleship was orthodox, but that he repented for his part as a leader in those cases in which discipleship was practiced wrongly. The fact that Brother Bob apparently came to this decision without discussing it with the other brothers with whom he had served as a leader opened the doors to misunderstanding. Misunderstanding and offense were also increased by the way his statement was handled by some in the Christian publishing industry at that time. The story was not over yet, however. There was great rejoicing and God was glorified when Brother Bob and Brother Charles publicly reconciled with one another at a conference in Gatlinburg, Tennessee in 2006. Many leaders who had looked to the five teachers for mentoring and leadership came together for that celebration of reconciliation. Brother Bob and his son Eric are still working together to edify God's people and to advance God's kingdom. Brother Charles and his son Stephen are also actively involved in serving the Lord and the church together. I've had the joy of participating in their annual family gathering in Gatlinburg several times in my later years. Their CSM website offers many resources. The fact that the brothers who were our leaders continue to serve God effectively is wonderful to me. The disillusionment that followed their decision to work separately was not wonderful. Many of us had been convinced that the shepherding movement was on the cutting edge of the Spirit's work in our generation, not without a measure of carnal pride, in me at least. 
and I still believe it was on the cutting edge, failures and mistakes notwithstanding. The restoration of the biblical vision for making disciples, for building Christian communities, for seeing the kingdom of God grow in the nations by the power of the Holy Spirit, it was a message that was critical for our generation. As time has passed, it's even clearer to me that we were hearing truly from the Spirit. No matter how weak and insufficient our ability may have been to be the agents through whom God worked. In the mid-1980s, however, time had not passed, and hindsight was not at all clear to me. As I close this chapter, I uh, just wanted to mention that Bob Mumford's material is and current ministry is available at lifechangers.org as well as on Facebook. And Charles Simpson's is at csmpublishing.org. And also you'll see posts from his son Stephen and from the ministry on Facebook. In the reading, I said that I had mentioned David Moore's book at the end of the last episode. I see that I was wrong about that. I was remembering the fact that I wrote a closing for this episode and it's in there. Oh boy, the problems of old age. There's been much said and written about discipleship or the shepherding movement. As I indicated as I read, much of what is written is highly critical and some extremely critical. Some of the criticism have come from people who were hurt when they were part of the movement. A lot of criticism has also come from people outside the movement who either misunderstood or even misrepresented what had taken place. Even though the movement officially disbanded years ago, I still, from time to time, come across people who speak or write about it hypercritically. For those with any interest in that history, I want to recommend again David S. Moore's book, The Shepherding Movement, Controversy and Charismatic Ecclesiology, which was published in 2003. The book is now out of print, and it might be hard to find, but it's worth the effort and costs for those interested in an objective account and evaluation of that movement. Moore was at one time in one of the churches related to the movement, and significantly, he was one of those who experienced hurt. He wrote the book for his doctoral dissertation. Therefore, the book is well-researched from written documents as well as from his personal interaction with both leaders who were part of the movement and also with leaders who opposed it. As Moore points out, the movement had a lasting positive influence in the wider church. Some emphases, such as the message of the kingdom of God, the responsibility we have to make disciples, the value of having small groups in churches, for example. These have become widespread and commonplace. They were not in the early 1970s. This spread has happened in part because of the pioneering work of those in the discipleship movement. Yes, there was bathwater to discard, but there's also a baby worth keeping. God bless you all.